Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, the book of Hosea, chapters 13 and 14. Well, we concluded at Hosea 13.9 last time, which begins a three-verse section that is essentially a divine statement as part of an oracle. It's an oracle that involves a controversy and a dispute. Now the dispute is that God is telling Israel what they've done wrong in their unfaithfulness to Him and their outright idolatry. And Israel's denying it. And they're also in denial about what's happening to them. So let's reread this short section. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 13, or you're just going to reread verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. It is your destruction, Israel, although your help's in me. So now, where's your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your judges? of whom you said, Give me a king and leaders. Well, I gave you a king in my anger, and in my fury I took him away. These three verses are God speaking. And He begins by saying bluntly that He will destroy Israel. Now the verb form used here is the perfect tense, meaning the action is already begun. And as we have seen in earlier verses and chapters, Israel seems to be oblivious to what Hosea has been telling them. They're in full-blown denial. It's not that they don't recognize their precarious national situation on being, of being on the verge of being conquered by Judah, and at the same time finally recognizing that Assyria poses an even bigger danger to their national sovereignty, it's that they still won't acknowledge that it is their God, Yehovah, whom is behind this looming catastrophe, because He is severely punishing them. Instead, they continue to plead for deliverance, of course on their own terms. They run around trying to find Gentile allies to rescue them, ignoring Hosea's message that their doom is assured, and that the process of their demise is already well underway. Since that is the unchangeable situation, then Israel's only rational response for the time being ought to be a most practical one. Plan! Plan and prepare yourself to see where you've gone wrong. Prepare your households for survival in the coming bad times. At the same time, again, examine yourself to see where you've gone wrong, then confess your iniquity before Jehovah. That's the procedure. That's the rational thing to do. Therefore, in the second half of verse 9, Jehovah essentially asks just who it is they think is going to save them. 
Of course, the implication is that since it is God that's against them, then God is the only one who can deliver them. And he's already said he's not going to deliver them. See, this Torah concept of Yehovah being Israel's one and only deliverer from any and every type of trouble or enemy, Israel has forgotten because they've forgotten the Torah. Deuteronomy 33 verses 26 through 29, Yeshurun, there is no one like God, riding through the heavens to help you, riding on the clouds in His majesty. The God of old is a dwelling place with everlasting arms beneath. He expelled the enemy before you and He said, destroy. So Israel lives in security. The fountain of Yaakov, Jacob, is alone in a land of grain and new wine where the skies drip with dew. Happy are you, Israel. Who's like you? A people saved by Adonai, your defender helping you, and your sword of triumph. Your enemies cringe before you, but you will trample down their high places. Hosea 13.10 refers to Israel's current government that's in chaos. And if you cross-check between various Bible versions, the opening words can be translated quite differently. The way the complete Jewish Bible has it, so now, where is your king, is the most common approach. And this is the same meaning that is described in the Old Greek of the Septuagint. That's that translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek that took place in the third century BC. However, we do find something different in the Masoretic Hebrew text. The opening of verse 10 is, I shall be your king then. Now interestingly, this is the way the, the uh, King James Version has it. Now good arguments can be made for either translation, but I think overall the context makes the way the complete Jewish Bible and the majority of other versions translate it to, so now where is your king? I think it makes it the most likely. See, I think this is really kind of a sarcastic, if not a taunting, remark that has 1 Samuel chapter 8 in mind. It is another case in the book of Hosea of God reminding Israel that their insistence to have and depend upon a human king was never his idea in the first place. Far from it. It was deeply offensive to God. There in Samuel we find these words in 1 Samuel 8 verses 4 through 20. All the leaders of Israel gathered themselves together, approached Shmuel, that's Samuel, in Ramah, and said to him, look, you've grown old. Your sons are not following your ways. Now give us a king to judge us just like all the nations. Shmuel was not pleased to hear them say, give us a king to judge us, so he prayed to Adonai. And Adonai said to Shmuel, listen to the people, to everything they say to you. For it's not you they're rejecting, they're rejecting me. 
They don't want me to be king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they have been doing to me. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until today by abandoning me and serving other gods. So do what they say, but give them a sober warning, telling them what kinds of rulings their king will make. Shmuel reported everything Adonai had said to the people asking him for a king, and he said, well, here's the kind of rulings your kings will make. He'll, make, he'll draft your sons and assign them to take care of his chariots, be his horsemen, be bodyguards running ahead of his chariots. He'll appoint them to serve him as officers in charge of a thousand or fifty, plowing his fields, gathering his harvest, making his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters. He'll have them be perfume makers and cooks and bakers. He'll expropriate your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, the very best of them, and hand them over to his servants. He'll take the 10% tax of your crops and vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He'll take your male and female servants, your best young men and your donkeys, and make them work for him. He will take the 10% tax of your flocks, and you will become his servants. And when that happens, you will cry out on account of your king, whom you yourselves chose. But when that happens, Adonai will not answer you. However, the people refused to listen to what Shmuel told them, and they said, No, we want a king over us so that we can be just like all the other nations, with our king to judge us, lead us, fight our battles. So in Hosea 13, 9-11, God is essentially saying this to Israel, You remember long ago when through my prophet Samuel I warned you that by demanding a human king you were rejecting me as your king, and that I cautioned you about the disastrous consequences your kings would eventually heap upon you, and that eventually even the king's mighty military would not be able to save himself or you from enemies. But most importantly, that when you finally realized that what I told you was true and you wanted me back as your king, that I'd refuse to help you? Well, after a long time, this is all happening to you right now, this very moment. And it is I who am not only not going to rescue you, I'm the one who's going to lead an enemy to decimate you. Now, likely this verse was penned by Hosea after King Hosea's rebellion against Assyria. Hosea, Hosea stopped paying the agreed-to tribute to Assyria for the privilege of being a vassal state to Assyria. And it resulted with him being deposed and imprisoned by Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, for his treachery. Well, that event essentially marked the end of Israel's monarchy. And from that time forward, Israel no longer had an Israelite king. Israel would remain as a nation for just a couple more years before the next king of Assyria, Sargon, invaded 
conquered Israel, and emptied the land of the people. Verse 11 says, Again in line with what we read in 1 Samuel 8, that it was in God's what? In His anger that He gave Israel a mortal king. That is, the people demanding that Samuel give them a king made Jehovah so angry at them that as a punishment for their rejection of God as their king, He gave them what they wanted rather than saying no. Saying no would have saved them from the many negative consequences that inevitably came about by having this series of human kings. And now in God's wrath, that's what we're reading about in Hosea, He has ended Israel's monarchy, and the people of Ephraim Israel no longer have an Israelite government or an Israelite king to look to for help. Now the northern kingdom's first king was Saul, around 1030 BC. Their final king, Hosea, was deposed from the throne by Assyria in about 725 BC. So Israel had a series of human kings to rule over them for three full centuries. The only king of Israel that truly seemed to please God was David. Not because David was necessarily a good man or a moral man at all times. He certainly was not. You know, it's always perplexed Christianity and it's caused Judaism to have to find a way to rationalize David's behavior because of their veneration of him. That at the same time we read of David committing evil things like adultery and murder, God says David was a man after his own heart. Now, I have little doubt that God's meaning concerns David's commitment to running the government of Israel generally in the same manner God would have run it, by refusing to allow the worship of foreign gods. In other words, no idolatry. No idolatry in his kingdom. And by being unrelenting and courageous and trying to fight off pagan nations from even getting a foothold in the Promised Land. It certainly was not about David's personal life that was just riddled with serious moral failures. But beginning with his son Solomon, the way Israel's government functioned was going to change for the worse. Okay, turn your Bibles back to Hosea as we read the final verses of chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 12, go through the end. Hosea 13, starting at verse 12, going on to the end. Ephraim's guilt has been wrapped up, his sins stored away. The pain of being born will come to him, but he's an unwise son. The time has come, and he shouldn't delay there at the mouth of the womb. Should I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Should I redeem them from death? Where are your plagues, death? Where is your destruction, Sheol? My eyes are closed to compassion. 
For though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, a wind from Adonai blowing up from the desert. Then his water source will dry up, then his spring will fail, it will plunder his treasury, removing every precious thing. Now depending on your Bible version, some of you may have a sixteenth verse to end this chapter. Other versions put this sixteenth verse as verse 1 of chapter 14. And we're going to talk about this a little more shortly. The complete Jewish Bible interpretation of verse 1 that begins, Ephraim's guilt has been wrapped up, is a poor one. Rather, it should read, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. The issue is the word guilt versus the word iniquity. All throughout Hosea, generally throughout the Old Testament, iniquity is defined as the worst sort of sin in a hierarchy of sins. The Hebrew word is a bone, and by no means does it translate to guilt. So the idea is that Ephraim's sins are classified as the worst of the worst. The meaning of iniquity being bound up is that it is a fate accompli. What's done is done. Now it can't be undone. To say that her sin is stored away means it will not be forgotten, it will not be overlooked. See, these terms used were common in the Middle Eastern culture of the day. Shalomi Holtz explains the use of these colloquial terms used in this verse. He says this, Neo-Babylonian trial records from the Aana Temple at Uruk show that when the temple authorities were informed of a misdeed, let's say a crime, they would tie up and seal the physical evidence for use in the subsequent proceedings against the offender. In other words, just as today, the evidence from a crime scene is confiscated by the police and it's put into a secured evidence locker at the police station for use at a trial. It was that way in antiquity in the Middle East. The term bound up and sealed was used to describe the securing of that evidence. Now we find this same term and thought used in an earlier book of the Bible, in Job 14, verse 17, you will seal up my crime in a bag and cover over my iniquity. Now verse 13 is another one that is less than satisfactorily translated, I'm afraid, in the complete Jewish Bible, where it says, the pain of being born will come to him. It should read that pangs of childbirth come for him. So in the complete Jewish Bible, the him, which of course is Israel, is the one that's being born. And according to this translation, he feels pain in being born. 
But the proper interpretation is, is that Israel feels the pains that the woman, the mother, feels when she's giving birth to a child. A woman giving birth usually feels intense labor pains from her contractions, and so this birthing metaphor is used to compare the intense pain Israel feels for what is happening to it as a result of God's punishment for their iniquity. Why does Israel feel this kind of pain? Because, as the verse continues, he, meaning Israel, is not a wise child. Israel feels a pain that they didn't need to feel, if only they weren't so sinful. Israel's pain is abnormal. So, Israel's unwise, ungodly choices destined to destruction and to a painful death. Now, the final words of this verse are equally poorly translated in the complete Jewish Bible as they depict Israel about to emerge from the birth canal as it feels this pain. This makes no sense in the context of the passage. Rather, the proper sense of it goes something like this. Indeed, this is not an appropriate time to survive the process of giving birth. So, in a very graphic and, and grueling style of language, the idea is that it's probably better for Israel to die, just like a mother dying in childbirth, than to have to go through what lay ahead of it. Now, this is hyperbole. God is not suggesting that the people of Israel should somehow be sure that they do not survive a serious takeover of Ephraim Israel and the subsequent exile to foreign lands that they're going to have to face. It's not what he's suggesting. Just saying what it's going to be like. Now, verse 14 presents us with another conundrum. Now, to remind you, the terms that Hosea uses are firmly rooted in 8th century BC Ephraim Israel culture and language. Many of these terms are expressions that one had to be familiar with to fully understand. No doubt Hosea's first readers knew exactly how to take these words. However, in much later times, two primary but different paths of interpretation were developed to explain this passage. The first path is that this is an expression of hope for Israel. The hope is that Yehovah will intervene and He'll stand in the way of death and the grave for Israel, or alternatively, Yehovah leaves Israel to the death that they deserve. Now we're going to examine this a bit closer, but I'm just going to jump to the bottom line for a moment. The final words of this verse say, compassion or pity are hidden from my sight. Since the entire book of Hosea is about judgment upon Israel, and that Israel is past the point of any possible redemption, then when God says that pity is hidden from him, it seems to me that it can only mean that God will not have pity on Israel. 
all right, so as to keep them from being punished, keep them from being exiled. Otherwise, we have God pitying what is a personified, in this passage, Sheol and death. Therefore, I take this to mean that the overall sense of verse 14 is negative towards Israel. God will not stand in the way of Israel's demise. In fact, what this is really getting at is, God says He's going to summon the spirit rulers of death and dying in the grave, so that the curses contained in the covenant of Moses will commence. Deuteronomy 4.26, I call on the sky and on the earth to witness against you today that you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days there, but you will be completely destroyed. And with that understanding then, this verse 14 becomes a series of four rhetorical questions. Should God rescue Israel from Sheol? Should He redeem Israel from death? Should death be deprived of her plagues? Should Sheol be prohibited from casting her plagues. As used here, Sheol and, and, and death are used as synonymous terms, but these are personified terms. Both of them refer to the domain where people who, are di who die are sent. However, at the same time, they can refer to the spiritual beings the spiritual powers that rule over that domain, which is in, which in um, other Old Testament passages are sometimes given the name of Mot and Sheol. So when we realize that death and Sheol, when personified, refer to the powers of the underworld, then the meaning of this passage is that God is prepared to summon the spirit powers, Mot and Sheol, to come and do their dark jobs. And their dark jobs are to snatch people from life, in this case Israel, and usher them into the realm of the dead. Verse 15 now, uses two metaphors. And these two metaphors are actually curses. And they have double meanings. The first metaphor depicts Ephraim Israel as a plant. It's a plant that's going to wither away and it's going to perish from a lack of water. The second metaphor is of a divine storehouse that represents where all the fruits of Israel's blessings have been stored, up to now anyway, for safekeeping. However, these storehouses will soon be stripped bare. Again, we have two curses upon Israel whose source is the Law of Moses, the Torah. We find these curses in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 
begins by explaining Israel's rewards for being faithful and obedient to Yahweh, to Yehovah. In verse 12 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, Adonai will open for you his good treasure, the sky, to give your land its rain at the right seasons and to bless everything you undertake. You will lend to many nations and you will not borrow. But then comes quickly in that same chapter of Deuteronomy a warning. In verse 15 it says, But if you refuse to pay attention to what Adonai your God says, and do not observe and obey all of his mitzvot, his commandments and regulations which I'm giving you today, then all the following curses will be yours in abundance. Well, next a list of curses is provided with the ones appropriate for what Hosea 13.15 promises that begins with the 23rd verse of Deuteronomy 28. There it begins, The sky over your head will be brass, and the earth under your feet iron. Adonai will turn the rain in your land, will turn the rain your land needs into powder and dust that will fall on you from the sky until you're destroyed. Adonai your God will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will advance on them one way and you'll flee before them seven. You will become an object of horror to every kingdom on earth. God is merely enacting then, here in Hosea, exactly what He said He'd do for the violations Ephraim Israel committed against the covenant of Moses. Well, the beginning of verse 15 speaks of flourishing among the reeds. Now the east wind it speaks about is a hot, dry, fiercely destructive wind that comes to dry up the necessary source of water for reeds to grow. So the metaphors of a dying plant and Israel's treasure, their blessings, being plundered have the second application of referring to Assyria. It's Assyria that is the destructive wind from the east that's going to come and confiscate Israel's treasure, their land and their crops. They will also plunder Israel's treasures of gold and silver and all their belongings that they had accumulated in good and prosperous times. Death and Sheol will come to Israel by means of the vast Assyrian military forces, leaving nothing but devastation, loss, and tears in their wake. Israel's mostly ill-gotten prosperity is in process of passing away. Now, I mentioned earlier that some Bible versions place a 16th verse at this point, while the remainder place the same verse as the first verse of the next, uh, which is the final chapter. However, in some respects it doesn't belong in either the 13th or the 14th chapters. I want to begin by reading that verse, regardless of which place you might find it in. It, it reads the same. It says this, Shomron, Samaria, will bear her guilt, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword, their little ones will be dashed to pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. 
Now, oftentimes, the discrepancy of where a verse is placed in a chapter has much to do with whether we are reading words that come from Bibles based on the Greek Septuagint or alternately on the Hebrew Masoretic text. That is not the case here. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls that may have answered in an interesting way exactly where this verse was supposed to appear in our Bibles and what thought process this verse was to be seen as in connection to. See, in the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Hosea, that have been found, this verse is clearly separated from the verses of Hosea 13 and also from the verses of Hosea 14. Separated from both. That is, if we were to speak in terms of chapters, then this particular verse is very nearly its own chapter. But remembering that chapter and verse numbering is a very late innovation. It's completely artificial. And such a system never existed in the oldest Bible manuscripts. And in fact, chapter and verse numberings were created and inserted by a Christian scholar only about a thousand years ago. Then the placement of this verse and the Dead Sea Scrolls indicates it was clearly meant as a standalone thought. A standalone thought that comes, I guess we could call it a sort of a bridge, a bridge, or maybe a transition between the, the final words of what we call chapter 13 and the start of what we call chapter 14. So this unique verse is not the ending thought of the words that come before it, nor is it the beginning thought of the words that come after it. The reason for this isn't clear, but in ancient Jewish literary thought, it of course meant something. At the least it meant that it was viewed as a unit of thought. It was a statement. It was an instruction that stands on its own. So I recommend that's how we take it. Now essentially the focus of this verse is the capital city of the Northern Kingdom, which is Samaria. Now Samaria was the location of the seat of government for the Northern Kingdom, just like Washington DC or London or Moscow. Now from the vantage point of history, at the time Hosea wrote this part of his prophecy, Samaria was about all that was left of the Northern Kingdom. Assyria had been attacking from the north with Judah chipping away from the south. But most important is that Samaria is where King Hosea reigned. And since he reneged on his treaty with Assyria that allowed him to remain in power provided he paid huge sums of tribute to Assyria, which he complied with for only a short time, Sargon, king of Assyria, determined to exact his furious revenge, specifically aimed at Samaria and at King Hosea. 
Now, the first few words of this verse are translated a bit differently from version to version, mainly due to the Hebrew verb that is used to explain what Samaria's condition was due to her rebellion against God. Now, briefly, this verse says that Samaria bears her guilt, or, alternately, she feels guilty, or, alternately, she is devastated. Now, the reason for all these different interpretations is because the verb used is the Hebrew word asham, that either derives from the Hebrew word that's spelled shin mem, or some Hebrew scholars say it should be tav shin mem. The first spelling speaks of guilt. The second spelling speaks of desolation, that is, Israel's made desolate because of her guilt. In either case, the idea is that Samaria is suffering because she rebelled against Jehovah and that her suffering is well deserved. Well, the next words are, I mean, terribly gruesome. Terribly gruesome. And some Christians, Christian scholars say, it's an expression of hyperbole, it didn't, this stuff really didn't occur. That is, this speaks of infanticide, by throwing babies off of cliffs or bashing their heads against something hard, as is ripping open the pregnant bellies of women to kill both the woman and her unborn child. Now, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is not hyperbole. There is record in other ancient Middle Eastern societies of this exact same thing happening. It happened. And we also find this indescribable atrocity mentioned in other parts of the Bible. Amos 1.13, here's what Adonai says, For the people of Ammon's three crimes, no, four, I will not reverse it, because they ripped apart pregnant women just to expand their territory. Sadly, we also read that a king of Israel, Menachem, son of Gadi, committed this same barbaric act against an enemy in 2 Kings 15, verse 16. From Tirzah, Menachem attacked Tifsach, all the people in it and its territory, because they had not opened their gates to him. So he sacked the city and ripped apart all its pregnant women. A serious siege of the walled city of Samaria lasted for three years. Can you imagine? Three years. The book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, recounts the siege of Samaria. Now here's a short excerpt from that narrative about the siege that Hosea's, the siege that Hosea is actually telling us about now. So in 2 Kings 17, verses 5 through 12, we read, Then the king of Asher, king of Assyria, invaded all the land advanced on Shomron, advanced on Samaria, and put it under siege for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Asher captured Shomron. He carried Israel away captive to Asher, resettling them in Halach, in Havor, on the Gozan River, and in the cities of the Medes. This came about because the people of Israel had sinned against Adonai their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, out from under the domination of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, they feared other gods, laid lived by the customs of the nations that Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel and by those of the kings of Israel. 
the people of Israel secretly did things that were not right, according to, the, to Adonai their God. They built high places for themselves wherever they lived, from the watchtower to the fortified city. They set up standing stones and sacred poles for themselves on any high hill, under any green tree. Then they would make offerings on all the high places, like the nations Adonai had expelled ahead of them, and would do wicked things to provoke the anger of Adonai. Moreover, they served idols, something Adonai had expressly told them not to do. As an important aside, we see then that Hosea was written well before 2 Kings was written, Hosea prophesied what the writer of the book of Kings would eventually record as the historical outcome, just history, of what God told the people of the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel through his prophet Hosea about what was going to happen to them. The two biblical books of the Kings are more historical record than they are theological. Hosea is more theological than historical. but. The way the books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, work in conjunction with one another, even though these books were written separately by different people, often centuries apart, highlights the critical principle that any worshiper of God should not simply cherry-pick verses from various Bible books, or even study some books but not others, or constantly hop around the Bible if one hopes to add glean meaning to find truth, actual evidence of the validity and value of God's words. I know it's a principle that I harp on. I know that. And I urgently hope that each of you will adopt it. That if you, will, if you want to sincerely know God's message to humanity, then you must necessarily begin at the beginning. You must study the Bible in chronological order. Now, I understand the church's fascination with the New Testament. But to study it before studying the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, it's going to give you an incomplete, fuzzy, not confused view of what it is you're reading. So, the second half of our verse now, final verse of chapter 13 speaks of the severe military action Assyria is going to take against the residents of the city of Samaria, and along with it, the termination of the government of Ephraim Israel. The historical records of Sargon, the king of Assyria at this time, say that not only did he exile all the Israelites to foreign lands, but he also captured and took captive 27,290 to be used as his slaves. Alright, moving on to what most Bibles label as verse 2 of the next chapter. After 13 chapters now, after 13 chapters of judgment, judgment, and more judgment, the 14th chapter presents a glimmer of hope with a promise from Yehovah that Israel will return to their land, and a new and a better future for them will emerge. 
we should see this final chapter of Hosea as consisting of two distinct but closely related sections. So, let's read all of chapter 14 together. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 14. We're going to read it all. Shomron will bear her guilt, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword, their little ones will be dashed to pieces, their pregnant women are ripped open. Return, Israel, to Adonai your God, for your guilt has made you stumble. Take words with you, and return to Adonai. Say to him, forgive all guilt and accept what is good. We will pay instead of bulls the offerings of our lips. Asher will not save us, we will not ride on horses, we will no longer call what we made with our hands our gods, for it is only in you that the fatherless can find mercy. I will heal their disloyalty, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from him. I will be like dew to Israel, he will blossom like a lily, strike roots like the Lebanon. His branches will spread out, his beauty be like an olive tree and His fragrance like the Lebanon. Again, they will live in His shade and raise grain. They will blossom like a vine, and its aroma will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim will say, What have I to do anymore with idols? And I, I answer and affirm Him. I am like a fresh green cypress tree. Your fruitfulness comes from Me. Let the wise understand these things. Let the discerning know them, for the ways of Adonai are straight, and the righteous walk in them, but in them sinners stumble. Amen. Yes, amen. Now the first section is verses 2 and 3, or for some of you, verses 1 and 2. Now Hosea gives to Israel a prayer. He gives Israel a prayer that is actually not intended for the people of Ephraim Israel that were currently being captured or deported, but rather it's a prayer for the remnants and descendants of those ten tribes of the northern kingdom to recite as the time for their return to their land approaches, a time far into the future from the days of Hosea. So I'm going to say this another way. It's a prophetic prayer, the content of which applies to the end times ten lost tribes of Israel. The second section begins with verse 4, for some of you verse 3, and it is Jehovah promising to answer the prayers of His people when that time arrives. Now, the complete Jewish Bible does a poor job, frankly, with verse 2, and perhaps the best translation comes from the YLT Bible, that's a Young's literal translation, and it reads like this, Turn back, O Israel, unto Jehovah thy God, for thou hast stumbled by thine iniquity. Now, while many other good Bible versions do a fine job with this verse, every last one of them determines to change one important word that is there in the Hebrew. 
they all say, turn back to the Lord. That's not what this scripture verse says. It says, turn back to Yehovah or to Yahweh, your God. Every last English Bible omits God's formal name. Every last one. This is important because it represents a statement to Israel that of the many gods worshipped by all the other nations, all of these gods, of course, being non-existent, it is Jehovah, the one who does exist, that is Israel's God. I'll say something to you that I've repeated scores of times in Torah class lessons, hoping that someday the impact of it will find a home in all believers. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God's name, spelled yud heh vav appears more than 6,000 times. 6,000. But in Christian Bibles, you'll find it in no more than a dozen times. Total. In some versions, fewer than that. I can't say with certainty why that is, because so many different versions were written by so many different people over a rather long period of time. However, my suspicion is that underlying it all, there remains within Christianity the desire to distance itself, not only from the Jewish people, but more importantly from the God of the Old Testament by implying that the God of the New Testament, Jesus, has replaced him. So in English Bibles, even in the Old Testament, the name of God the Father is intentionally obscured, such that every time we come to God's name, instead we see the word Lord inserted which is always a substitute for God's name. So our thoughts, well, where do our thoughts naturally go? Our thoughts naturally go to the Son, to Jesus, to Yeshua, and not to His Father, Yehovah, because to a Gentile, church-going Christian, a synonymous name for Jesus is Lord. Now the Hebrew word that is used to render the English turn back or return is suva. Now the more modern way, especially in the church, that this thought is presented is to repent. So the underlying meaning of repent is to turn, to turn away from sin, instead turns towards righteous behavior. Now for the ancient Israelites, and please hear this, for the ancient Israelites, to turn back to Yehovah meant only one thing. To turn back to the written Torah and the Law of Moses, to the ways of life, ritual, and behavior it established. That's it. That's all it meant. And believers in Yeshua of every ilk and denomination, that is exactly what it still means in the New Testament. To repent, oh, 
I just pray you're hearing me. To repent is to give up bad behavior in exchange for good behavior. Behavior that includes our religious worship practices, but only as is carefully prescribed in the Torah as opposed to our vast array of man-made religious doctrines and personal preferences. And at this point, let me point out a couple of things and make them very clear lest I be misunderstood. By no means am I saying that the Old Testament has greater authority than the New. Nor am I saying that the New Testament is absent any teaching about good behavior. Not saying that. But it's only in the Law of Moses that we will find a concise, God-ordained, moral law code of behavior that is laid down. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Yeshua clearly insisted that His coming did not abolish the Torah, and it didn't even change one iota of it. And Christ expects His followers to obey the Torah because it will remain in operation and relevant until after the Millennial Kingdom comes and goes, when a recreation brings about a passing of the current heavens and earth and the, and the appearance of a new heavens and earth. So the bottom line is that to repent means to turn to the behavioral ways of God's written Torah. Why must Israel turn or return? Because they had given in to their iniquities by means of turning away from God's Torah. Iniquities are the worst of the worst sins. As outlined in Hosea, those worst sins amounted to idolatry. Now, as modern believers and followers of Jesus Christ, whether you choose to label yourself as Christian, Messianic, Catholic, Orthodox, Coptic, whatever you want, we have been infected with a somewhat newer doctrine that has emerged that is entirely grace-focused. In fact, the focus on grace is often so one-sided that the concept of our behavior, of our works, as important for a believer is said to not only be irrelevant, it's actually problematic. That is, our behavior doesn't and shouldn't matter. It's what we believe in our hearts that God looks to. All of our bad behavior, whether it's out of ignorance or from our outright rebellion, no longer has relevance to our lives, it is said, because grace covers it all. So if we choose to change our poor behavior to become more biblically based and in line with God's commandments, Maybe we're shunning the salvation Christ gave us as a free gift of grace, and instead we're trying to work our way to heaven. Now this accusation is, of course, not true. Nor, frankly, is it biblical. It's not even rational. It's completely illogical. 
But it is what's chucked at those religious Jews who try to follow the Torah. And often it is what any Christian who speaks too much of good works or of being obedient, that's what we get presented with. Grace is not wrong. Grace is not wrong. But grace and grace alone as a doctrine is an imbalance. It's a misrepresentation of God's word. Over and over we find in the Holy Scriptures that the fruit of our trust in God, which is our behavior, our works, that's what God judges. We're told this over and over. So to repent, meaning to turn from our sins to God, which inherently means to turn to the written Torah, also inherently means to change our behavior and instead to produce good fruit, good works, instead of continuing to produce bad fruit, instead of continuing to exhibit wrong behavior. At the same time, the next verse of Hosea 14, when properly understood, it tells us that our good behavior is only one part of the equation. Just one part. The other part must involve sincere trust in God, which since Christ's advent and crucifixion means to also trust in God's Son. That is, good behavior and good works, while it's fully expected of us, have to come out of our faith. It has to come out of our trust in Yehovah and in Yeshua and from the truth and authority of the Bible. All right, let's stop here for today. Now next week, we're going to finish up chapter 14, which means we are going to conclude our study of the book of Hosea.